Hello, teen book lovers. We're back with another edition of Amy's Travels and Teen Fiction Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Michelle Barker, who you may know from her famous picture book, which was nominated for a TD Award, A Year of Borrowed Men, but she has also written science fiction, dystopia, and her new book is called The House of One Thousand Eyes, which is historical fiction in a way, but also dystopian in another way, true life dystopian. And so, Michelle, welcome to the show. I'd like to start out by saying that, as we all know, with the exception of Indigenous people who have been here, everyone else has a story about how their families came to Canada and why they came to Canada, even if it's generations back. So let's just start with what your story is. Well, actually, uh, first of all, hi, and thank you for having me on the show. But um, I was adopted, so um, I don't really know what my story is. Um, I know what my mother's story is. My mother came to Canada in about 1955, I think, or 56, and she came from East Germany, and she actually got out um, with a, a visa that she wasn't really supposed to get out. She snuck out. So, um, and she left her whole family behind, except for her sister, who had already gone ahead of her. So it, it was quite quite an exciting and interesting story for how she got there. And I'm not really sure how my father's family ended up in Canada. They were in Winnipeg. I think they came from Eastern Europe, but that would have been, I think, quite a while ago, and I don't know the whole story about that one. So, Okay. Wow. That must have been, well, adventurous maybe. <laughs> not how she would have described it, but... Yeah, well, I mean, she was lucky because her older sister was already out um, and and contacted her and said, you know, you, you should really come. And her mother uh, gave her support, even though my mom knew that uh, when she left her mother, she might never see her again, although it turned out that she did. But she left when she was 17 with only a small bag because, of course, it couldn't look obvious that she was, you know, going and never coming back. So she had a, a visa where she was supposed to be visiting her sister for, I don't know, a week or something like that, and she just didn't come back. Yeah, and she never, she never looked back. She got a job in West Germany, and then she ended up taking, uh, um, I guess, a ship. Maybe I can't remember if she took a ship or she flew to Canada. Anyways, um, yeah, it was kind of exciting and adventurous and crazy, so yeah. What made her decide on Canada? Her sister had gone ahead of her. Oh, right. Canada first, yeah. And her sister said, you know, this is a good place. And, and my mom wanted to be with at least one person who was familiar to her. So, And they went to uh, Port Alberni on Vancouver Island. Oh, nice. Wow, that's quite the exciting story. <laughs> yeah. So I did want to ask you, that seems like a bit of a switch to me from the science fiction-y kind of writing, fantasy kind of writing to this amazing piece of historical fiction. What made you decide to switch genres like that? 
Well, actually, a couple things I want to say about that. First of all, I switched genres mainly because I started to realize that my mom was getting older. And I knew that she had all these incredible stories about uh, growing up in Germany and then, you know, being in East Germany and, and, and leaving. And I realized that if I didn't start um, talking to her about them and writing them down and, and maybe thinking about, you know, working with them, that I might miss my chance. So that was when I, when I first wrote A Year of Borrowed Man. That was one of the reasons why I wrote it is that I just realized that the time had come that I, I needed to do this. Um, and I mean, little did I expect that it would sort of open a door onto this huge world that it just seems to be never ending. You know, what, now that I'm, you know, started writing about Germany, it's like, it, I don't know where to stop. Hmm. But um, the other thing that I found that was really interesting is that there is a connection between fantasy and historical fiction that I think people might not expect in that um, both of them involve a lot of world building. And I think if you learn how to world build in fantasy, there is sort of a natural progression to being able to do it in historical fiction because you face the same challenges. Um, in fantasy, you have this world that you've worked on for so long. And of course, you want to you know, put all of it into the story and you can't. Um, and in historical fiction, it's a question of research. And so, you know, you have these piles of research and you've worked for months or, or however long, um, you know, gathering all of this stuff together and it's all wonderful and you want to put it all in there, but you can't, right? And you have to find a way to, to, to include it seamlessly so that your reader is going to have a feeling for the world without, uh, feeling like they've, you know, been dumped over the head with a whole bunch of, of research. So the, the, yeah, the challenges are similar. So it's, there's a little bit more connection than, than you would expect. That makes a lot of sense, though. I, I see what you're saying, because, yes, you have to take your reader and put them back in time to this historical setting that you're setting up. So, it, yeah, it is world building, a lot of world building. And, it's based on, it's inspired by your mother's stories then, but not her, her story per se. Exactly. I don't think, I, I wouldn't have written about East Germany probably if not for her. So she was the direct inspiration behind my being interested in the country, but the story itself uh, is not based on her life at all. Um, but I was very lucky because, of course, I had her to talk to, and I also had relatives who still live in Germany and who were in East Germany through, through the whole time until the wall came down. So when I went to Germany to do research, actually for a different novel, I wasn't really even expecting to write this novel, um, I thought, well, I'll go visit them because I, I, I had never met them before. And, you know, they took me around in the, the town where my mother had grown up, and they talked a lot about what life had been like in East Germany. So it was super interesting. And, of course, I took notes the whole time and, and, um, and you know, used some of that stuff as well. So it was lucky to have the family. Even though I didn't use what happened to them, I was able to, to draw on their background. So that was good. And that would add to the world-building aspect because you had the first-hand perspective. Exactly, exactly. E excellent. I find it interesting, though, that it is historical fiction, but it's also a real-life dystopia of what happened. And I was just wondering how you came up with this particular story. It's so Orwellian 
but it's true. <laughs> yeah, crazy. You know, it's funny. The fact that it's, it, it reads as a dystopian was a complete accident. That is not. I, that was not my intention when I was writing it at all. I was just trying to capture what the times were like, you know, in East Germany at that time. So the fact that it sort of reverberates with, with modern the, the modern world is, I mean, maybe it's an unfortunate accident that we can still see parallels to, to, uh, to East Germany now. But, um, yeah, that was not my intention. But the way I came up with the story, um, I was reading a book called Stasiland by Anna Funder, which is absolutely wonderful. It's, um, she, she went to Germany uh, after the wall came down, and she interviewed a whole bunch of people who had lived through the East German regime. And so I was reading through these stories, and there was one story that really caught my eye. She had gone and talked to um, a musician who was in a band called Renft. And Renft had been quite popular in East Germany. Uh, their music was considered subversive. And so they, I think it was the mid-70s, they had to go to the Ministry of Culture and have their license renewed. And this is what they expected was going to happen. And they showed up, and the committee said to them, from now on, you don't exist anymore. And literally overnight, their music disappeared from every single store in East Germany. So the radio stopped playing them. Um, the recording company catalogs were reprinted. And the band wasn't in it anymore. And the state put out a rumor that Renft had split up. And actually, in a way, it was true because half of them had been thrown in jail. So when I read this story, I thought, holy cow. Like, first of all, the fact that a government can do this and can do it so quickly, but also, like, there would have been people in East Germany who would have known that, that Renft hadn't split up. They would have known what had happened, and yet they wouldn't have been able to talk about it because you couldn't trust anybody. You know, you never knew who was an informer. So that sort of sparked in my mind, an idea of a character. I started thinking about a writer who maybe had, you know, crossed the line with authorities. And, um, and so I started wondering, you know, what would it look like to make somebody disappear? So, so that was sort of the little seed in my head, but I was supposed to be working on a different novel completely. <laughs> I had gotten a Canada council grant and I, you know, I had to just say, okay, East Germany, you have to be set aside because I really am supposed to be doing another job. So I went, um, that, and so I, I got the grant, and uh, part of it was to be able to travel to Germany to do research. So I went to Germany, and I thought, well, I'm going to be in Berlin anyways. And uh, Anna Funder had written about this, the Stasi headquarters in Berlin, and this is the place that was called the House of 1,000 Eyes. So I thought, hmm. I'm going to be here. I may as well stop in, right? Because they've turned it into a museum. And so I did. I went into this place. And I mean, there's so many amazing things about the, the, the headquarters and the way they've turned it into a museum. But one of the really amazing things is that Eric Milke's offices, and he was the head of the Stasi for decades, they're still there. And they look exactly the way they would have looked when he was in charge. So I'm walking through these offices. And I'm thinking, you know, somebody would have had to clean this place, right? And whoever would have had to clean it would have potentially been able to, you know, look at some papers, right? Even though I figured that they would have been locked up. But I mean, if you knew where the key was, you know, you could get your hands on some pretty damaging information. So that was when the, the pieces started to fall into place. I started thinking, you know, what if it was a girl um, and they hired her because they thought she was simple-minded? And what if that, you know, that, that she had an uncle, and this was the uncle, the, the writer who had disappeared. And then what if, because of her job, she was in the best place possible to be able to find out what had happened to him. And so that is how the whole story came together. It's a long, that's a long answer for a short question. 
but it's very interesting. And Lena, as a character, yeah, you do underestimate her in the beginning. You do. And then she just really grows and becomes her own person by the end of the book. It's, it's, I really enjoyed her character growth about how she was able to sort things out and, and keep her own mind in the face of everything that she was being told because it is astounding how many people would have to be complicit in the uncle's disappearance for him not to be mentioned, for all his books to disappear, and and the aunt not to talk about her brother, and it's just, it feels like a, a paranoid conspiracy, yeah. but like you said, it's actually happened. Governments have actually done this. That part, the fact that it is historical fiction just blows your mind. <laughs> And when you think of the lengths they went to, especially with the whole indoor marketplace where you can get anything you want and then you walk outside and you can't get anything. (laughs) Yeah, that's another and that's another thing that I read in Anna Funder's book. And that was another thing that blew me away. And I sort of and I wanted I wanted to be able to deal with that in a way that was sort of stark. And that was why I had Lena imagine it as a fantasy world because I felt like how could you, like if you if you had access to that grocery store and and then the, all the other places the bookshop and everything that were down there and yet you walked out into the real world and everything was sort of gray and drab and, and nothing was available how could you deal with the dichotomy I mean what would you do with that yes. right and so I felt like. That I, I wanted her to see it as a fantasy, like she was walking in Narnia, basically, when she went down to this um, this area with the grocery store and stuff. And and that was the only way that she could sort of come to terms with with the discrepancies in, in her world. Because I wondered, that was the thing that I really wondered, was how East Germans would have dealt with that. Um, now, a lot of them wouldn't have known about that grocery store, of course. But, you know, they would have had, you know, Western television was around and you could get it. Um, and by the, in the seventies, they used to patrol and, and check to see, um, which, which way your antenna was pointing, believe it or not. Um, so they, because they were, they, you weren't allowed to watch Western television. And, and if they saw that your, your antenna was pointed the wrong way, they knew, right. That, that you were watching it by the time the eighties came around, I think they had relaxed that a little bit, but people would have known, like they would have seen sort of what was happening in the West and they would have realized, Hey, our, our life is not like this. Like. Why, why are things so different for us? And we're not allowed to travel there. You know, like, what's up, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's crazy to think how, how they survived. That was a good way to deal with the duality of it. And then also with the sexual assault aspect, I think you would also have that duality that you were pretending it wasn't happening and because you'd have to deal with it every single day. And... She kept having to go into that situation because she needed a job and she needed to appear like she could handle things and not be put back in an asylum. Exactly, exactly. So that was her way of coping. That's right. I thought that was well done. That was great. Thank you. (laughs)
there's just so much to tackle in it. It's it's a little overwhelming in a way, I find. <laughs> but I just wonder, I like the view into it and how I, it gives you a really stark picture of what it was like and what it would be like to experience that. Well, I think one thing to be fair, you know, it's hard to know how many people experience things um, and to what degree, right? I mean, for, for, for many people, it was just life in East Germany, right? Like you went to school and, you know, you, you, you figured out which, what you were good at and to a certain extent you were, you were able to do these things. But you also had to, of course, show up to meetings, you know, toe the party line, right? But there were, I guess, a lot of people also who discovered that, you know, their best friends were informing on them or, um, you know, their brothers or sisters or, or parents or aunts or uncles were informing on them. And, I mean, all of a sudden they would lose their job or, you know, they would be expecting to go to university and then all of a sudden find out that every door was closed to them. So I think people had a variety of different experiences. And one of the things I really tried hard to portray in the book was a somewhat balanced view so that it, it didn't show that everything in East Germany was bad because it wasn't, right? I mean, for example, women were in the workforce in East Germany long before they were, it, it was, you know, considered normal in uh, North America, right? Right. And uh, there was daycare, there was healthcare, uh, there was a good education system. There was not that much crime, although there was more than what the government would have said there was. So those, like I, I tried to, I tried not to make it just a, a black world because it wasn't completely. I mean, the government was doing some things right, but they were doing a lot of things wrong too. So yeah, I, I, it was it was tough to come up with that balance. But the books that I read about East Germany really did show that. And I, I didn't think it would be fair to, um, to leave that part of the society out. How important do you think it is though to fight that kind of government? Oh, well, I think it would have been crucial, but I also think it would have been really, really hard. Um, I mean, if you fought, if you spoke up, you were put in jail. And who knows what would happen to you? I mean, you, you know, they, the problem was that they had so much power over people that you could, you could basically ruin your life by speaking out, which would happen to a lot of people. And I think that is you know, in general, that's the power of a totalitarian government is that they can ruin your life if you speak out. So who is going to have the courage to stand up and, and, and do the right thing? It's, it's when we look back, I think it's an easy thing to say, well, you know, I know what I would have done. Mm -hmm. I, I would have done. I mean, I probably would have towed the line because I would have been afraid. I would have wanted to get the job that I wanted, you know, and, and to, to have the life that I wanted and not to put everything at risk. You know? So it's, it's, it's tough. It's, it's a tough situation to be in. Do you see it as having a message for today's youth? Well, it wasn't my intention, but I think it probably does sort of have echoes for, for our world, of course. I mean, one of the things that, as I researched and, and learned about this world, it certainly made me appreciate the value of freedom. Because I think freedom in Canada, I've always grown up free. Um, and I've never thought about what it would be like to live in a society where my freedom was curtailed in a serious way. And when I went to this museum and I saw the way they were monitoring people and uh, saw what would happen if, for example, you um, uh, applied for a visa to leave, because you could, right? You could apply right. for a visa to leave to go to West Germany. But if you did that, you would 
possibly lose your job. They might put out rumors about you saying that you like had an addiction to pornography or something. Um, your kids, if they were going to go to university, they wouldn't get into university. You'd be followed. There was even a story, uh, and I'm sure it happened more than once, where the Stasi would go into a person's apartment while they were away, and they would move all the furniture around. <laughs> so then you'd come home. And you would see, like, the furniture has been moved, and you know you didn't do it, right? And nobody else did it, so that you knew that they had the power to come into your house when you weren't there and do whatever they wanted. And that, to me, is absolutely terrifying, to have that lack of freedom. So that was the thing that reverberated the most for me, is, is how lucky we are to have our freedom. And, and there are still places in the world where, where they don't have that, you know? So, yeah, it's kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. <laughs> But yeah, exactly like you said, the posters on Lena's wall where she comes back and, and the ones that she remembers being under are gone. <laughs> and she yeah, knows, exactly. she knows they were there, but then. Well, that's the thing. And once, once you know that somebody can invade your space to that degree, you lose all ability to trust. And I think that would be a, a horrendous thing, you know. And not only that, you, you were always thinking that somebody might be watching, somebody might be listening, and who you talk to, you're not completely sure that you can be honest with them because they might turn out to be informants, which happened all the time. Did you find it difficult to write from Lena's perspective in terms of her being simple-minded or... No, I actually had a pretty easy time doing that. I don't know. Something about her voice, it's funny because, and I think this is true with writing in general and, and voice. If you get the voice, like early on, you basically, the novel almost writes itself, you know, um, which happened and it has almost never happened to me before. In fact, I'm not sure that it has ever happened to me before. But when I was writing this novel, I, I have my notes even in my journal um, where I started, I just started. And I started writing from Lena's point of view. And all of a sudden, this, this voice, Mousy, came in. And that was it. It was done. You know, and, and from then on, I just, I had her voice. I had her point of view. And I was able to just be in there. Um, that, that, I didn't find that part to be the hard part. The, the hard part was the, the bad things that happened to her. Um, I had a real hard time making bad things happen to her, even though I know that as an author, that is my job um, <laughs> to make bad things happen to my characters. But there were certain chapters, even I remember the numbers of the chapters now that I don't like to read them because they're hard. Um, and I know that bad things happen in them. And I, and I found, I found that, that tough. So yeah, that was, that was the challenge for me with Lena because I liked her. <laughs> yes. But she does. She has several challenging moments where, yeah, it is hard to keep reading because you care so much about her and the stuff shouldn't be happening to her. Exactly. exactly. And it's, it is a bit hard to believe that they have such an interest in her when she's young girl and her parents die and it just shows how totalitarian it actually was that they felt they had to control her perceptions to that degree well because they knew i don't know how much i, I don't really want to spoil the story for listeners so i'm not sure how much i should say but they knew what her uncle was writing right, right. so they knew that if 
you know, if she got wind of it, if, 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 they, if she found out basically what her parents were involved in, all of that sort of stuff, there could be huge, huge trouble, right? Huge repercussions. So I think they, first of all, they were hoping that they could um, find things out about Eric from her, right? But secondly, they had to really control um, what she found out too. So I think that's why they, they you know, they, they had such a control over her. Well, that's true. I, I do think in the beginning it was more about what she could provide for them in terms of her connection to her uncle. And then it be, it became something else. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So and that was, interestingly enough, that wasn't something that occurred to me right away when I was working on the story. That came as sort of a revelation to me, too, as to as to what was really going on there. And that's like one of those exciting moments that, that doesn't happen very often. But all of a sudden, like, you think, oh, I get it. I know what this is. <laughs> going on here so yeah and I won't say too much because I don't want to ruin the story but yeah I, that was that was pretty pretty awesome <laughs> finding the layers in your own writing yeah exactly and, and realizing what was really going on you know so yeah because I didn't I, I wasn't I had a pretty good idea of, of the story I had to because when Annick approached me about about writing a book for them I had to come up with like something intelligent to say to them right they said do you have an idea yeah I have an idea I, I thought well I better write it down on paper and make sure that it actually makes sense you know before I go and meet with them so I wrote I had a pretty good idea of, of um, you know where the story was going to go and what it was going to be about but the, the the finer points of it I didn't really and so the moment where I realized why the Stasi was actually really interested in Lena was like a big light bulb moment for me because I, I didn't I didn't know that at the beginning. So, yeah. That's very neat. Do you mind if I ask what what you originally went to Germany to research? Oh, yeah, because that's the novel that I'm working on right now. It's a novel set uh, right when the Second World War ends. So directly 1945, like... Um, uh, April, May, June, around that area. And at the time that I was researching it, I thought it was going to go into, um, uh, like, not when East Germany is established, but just the years before, like, say, sort of 1945 to 48. And that novel was actually based very loosely on my mother's experiences. That whole thing fell apart. It just, it didn't work. Um, trying to write fiction out of nonfiction, for me, is just disastrous. So I ended up having to throw out nearly all of the manuscript and start over again um and now it's purely fictional so it's still set in the same time period and i'm still using the same characters but uh it is a 100 not my mother <laughs> so, so and that has made it so much easier because it's just allowed me to sort of break free of like you know worrying oh what is she gonna think and do i really want to write this or do i want to write that and i thought no 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 this is a this is a completely different story. These are fictional characters, um, and so that's yeah, that's the novel that I was working on at the time, and that I'm still working on now, and almost fingers crossed, finished. So, also to be published by Annick. I hope so if they like it. Oh, okay. It's <laughs> not something you pitched yet, or. They know that I'm working on something, and they want to know what it is, and they're hoping to read it shortly. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I'm hoping that they're going to like it, you know. So yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Exactly. So you think you'll continue with historical fiction then, for yes. at least yeah. 
for for a few more books, I think I'm going to be I'm going to be there. Yeah, I've I've really gotten hooked. I do complain about research from time to time <laughs> because it's hard. Um, I mean, you know, there's certain like little things when you can't find the answer, and you know, you look online, you look in different books, you pull your hair out. It, it's just you know, after a while, sometimes I do get very frustrated. Um, but I love I love the idea of being able to fit fiction into this sort of fence line of history where you have these borders. You can only go this far, right? Because that's what actually happened, right? And, and you can't, I mean, you can play around, I guess, with, with the actual history a little bit. And, and, you know, especially if you have an author's note at the, at the end saying, well, look, I knew it was like this, but I actually made it like that because it fit, fit with my story a little bit better, right? Yes. Um, but to a certain extent, history becomes that fence line. And, you know, you have to play within the fence and that's it. Right. And I like that's comforting to me as opposed to fantasy where you can do whatever you want. (laughs) And that's I mean, that is really hard because you have sort of no boundaries except for the boundaries that you make yourself. And you can keep on kind of shifting them here and there, um, which can cause a lot of trouble with history. You can't really do that. And that's that's good. I I need to have like rules, you know, (laughs) I need borders and stuff like that to keep me in line. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying historical fiction a lot. So yeah, I'll be in there for a few more books still. Plus I think it's so important because it really helps when you're looking at history to be able to put yourself in someone's shoes who lived during the time, even if they're fictional, it just helps on an empathy level to understand what they went through as opposed to just reading a textbook, which is dates and events and a colder interpretation of what actually happened. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, textbooks are great, but I think that, you know, when you're writing historical fiction, you want your reader to feel as if they're living in that time. Yes. I think the power of historical fiction, really. Um, and the other thing I would like to say about historical fiction is a, a quote that I found from a philosopher named Baruch Spinoza. And he said that if you want the present to be different from the past, study the past, which I think is really, that, I mean, that is the, the greatest reason of all to read historical fiction, right? If we look around us at the world and we think we don't like which way it's going, it's probably not a bad idea to look at what's happened in the past and, you know, see what we can learn from it so that we don't make the same mistakes over again. So, um, and that, that wasn't my original intention for writing historical fiction. My intention was more on the level of empathy that you suggested, because I found that the more I have learned about what happened to my mother, the more I, I like, I just sort of can't believe that she's still like a happy, well-adjusted person because the things she lived through blow me away. And I just didn't know. I really, even though she had told me stories, I didn't completely appreciate what her life must have been like as a young child and a teenager until I started writing these novels. Um, and, and I now look and I just think, wow, like you're normal. And I don't even know how you are because I would, I don't think I would be, you know, so it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Everyone would react in different ways, of course. And some would be able to, find a way to handle it and others would not so but that is that why you chose to make it a teen story because your mother was also in her teens when she left yeah you know it's I I think maybe partly yes but also partly I just find that when I write fiction particularly novels I guess because I've written short fiction for adults 
Um, somehow the teen voice is just the voice that fits with my mentality, my voice. I'm not really sure exactly what it is, but for some reason, that's what works. So um, that's what I do. Yeah, I, I don't, I, again, like it's not particularly intentional. It just somehow seems to be that's the way I write. So, yeah, <laughs> so it's young adult because of that. What do you think is about the teen voice that you connect with? That's a really good question that I'm not sure I have an answer to. Maybe I'm immature. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think one thing I do like about teen writing, though, is that you can't get away with a lot of nonsense. You know, um, young young readers and and like teen readers as well, they want to be in a story. They want to be experiencing the story. They do not want a whole lot of what Elmore Leonard would call hoopty doodle, which <laughs> is, you know, a writing that sounds like writing, you know, where you're yes. like going off on metaphors and you're like doing these detailed descriptions and it's all very lovely, except it has nothing to do with the story. Um, teen readers don't want that. They're not interested in that. And I kind of like the fact that you've got to get to the point and keep your story pretty streamlined. Otherwise, your readers are not going to be interested. So it's, it's a pretty demanding form of writing in that way. But I, I really like that. Um, but as for the voice itself, the teen voice, I don't know. I, I, I think maybe I, 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 st- I stuck in teenage years and, and I, I never really got, I, I never really progressed from there somehow. I don't know. Uh, I was talking to Alan Stratton and he, he says that everything has more weight for teens. The stakes are higher because everything's happening for the first time. That's a good point. I I kind of wonder if that's, that's part of it too, right? The, the intensity of their reactions and emotions are so strong that it does help you get to the point of things. Yeah, that's a really good point, I, I think. And there's also these sort of, these are like, these are threshold years too, right? Where you're, you know, you want to be an adult, but you're not really an adult. Um, and there's, so there's part of you that like is, is really looking to, to, to do adult things. But at the same time, you have this sort of younger younger you know emotional level maturity whatever like there, there's there's these things are at war with each other I think in, in a teenager and I find that very interesting um you know there's just so much conflict within the person themselves that just makes it sort of ripe for for a writer to to work on uh the whole coming of age and and you know and trying to sort of work things out you know how, what am I going to be like when I'm a grown-up um you know, who am I going to be? These, those are, those are big questions, you know? So, and, and, and why, like, what, what is the meaning of life essentially? Like, why am I here? These are things that, you know, teenagers are sort of, they're not afraid to look at. By the time we become adults, we sort of push them aside and think that, well, I, that, I'm not going to, I'm not going to think about that for a while. So, so yeah, that's, it, that all makes it very attractive. And you still have the feeling that you can change the world, I think. Yeah, which, exactly. Which is yeah. why these books are so important. Yeah, that's very, that's very true. Definitely. Um, but I did read that, uh, I haven't actually read The Beggar King, but it was supposed to be a trilogy, I thought. It was. It was supposed to be a trilogy, and uh, it, no, it, it will never be one. So, no. <laughs> um, no, you know, I wrote uh, a couple of other books, uh, maybe more than a couple, actually, now that I think of it. They just didn't 
work. I don't know. They didn't fit. Um, and then I just lost the taste for it. Um, because I felt like this is it's sort of hard to explain, but I, I, I felt like fantasy is that thing that, um, either you hit it or, or it, you don't like, for example, like hobbits, you know, Tolkien hit it with hobbits, right? Right. Hey, uh, Rowling hit it with Hogwarts and, and on all the things that are going on there. Um, the hunger games hit it. Yes. If you can't hit it, you, you just, I don't know, you know, like I, I sort of looked at my, at my, at my work that I, that I would have done after the Beggar King and I thought, ah, it's not quite there and I don't really know what to do about that and do I actually care? Um, and I've sort of reached the point where at least right now, I, who's to say what I'll do, you know, 10 years from now, but right now it's just not, it's not in the cards. I don't know. I have a, I have a couple of manuscripts that are sitting there that, uh, you know, I mean, they're not going anywhere, but I'm, I don't know if I'm ever going to dig them out, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Have you had a good response to the house of the 1000 eyes? So far, yeah, I've had some really good reviews, um, and the, the reviews that really excite me have been ones from from readers who are either German or actually lived through East Germany, um, because that really, like, when when they say uh, you got it right, I think, oh, thank God. Oh, <laughs> wow, that is a high praise. It is, right, because, I, you know, they're the ones who I, I'm afraid they would read it and think, oh, no, 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 like, wherever she got her information from, it's, you know, it's not, but that's not what they've said, so that's been very that, that's meant a lot to me to hear that the people who actually you know lived through it um felt that i'd hit the right note so so that was really good um yeah people seem to be pretty excited about it so far so you know we'll see what happens and in terms of a teen audience i haven't heard too much i got a, a tweet uh, a couple of days ago on on twitter from a librarian who said that her teen readers were so excited about it that they wanted a sequel. <laughs> and I thought, no, 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 not a sequel. I can't. But of course, I said, oh, sure, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll see, a sequel, maybe. But um, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. So, But that was nice to hear anyways. That they, You know, that's the ultimate compliment, I guess, is that they want more. So, Well, that means they really connected with Lena, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. That is high praise, <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully, I mean, you know, it, it's early days still. Like, it's only been out for a little while, and, you know, we'll see what happens. But I, I hope that it connects with teen readers. That's That was the idea, so. Have you been out for school visits or anything? No, not yet, not yet. Um, I, again, like, I, I, don't, and I don't know how popular it is with, with that, sort of the older teen readers, if, if for, for um authors to come to schools or not like I did that for a year of borrowed men with younger readers um but I'm not sure if if you know if they if they're into that or not so we'll have to see so so it was easier with the younger children yes that would make sense (laughs) yeah um and then of course with the tv nomination that that helped as well because they sent me out to calgary and uh and out to um uh, suburbs in Vancouver and stuff and so that was really fun that was good nice but the next book will also be a teen novel then yes, yes. Yeah. right yeah. I think I pretty much come to the end of my questions but 
I am fascinated. I there's so much to explore with historical fiction, and I just it. I agree that looking at the past really informs the present, and especially the way things are going now. It it's something we need to look at. It's a timely read for those reasons. And interest in general. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, again, it was not; it, it wasn't intentional. I mean, I was just trying to to create a picture of that time, um, and the fact that it happens to echo our time now is uh, a wonderful accident, I guess. So, do you think you'd be able to make the same decisions that Lena did? sure that I would have her courage I, I mean I hope I would and I you know I, I ask myself these questions all the time because in the the novel that I'm working on right now the, the characters are looking back and they're German and they're looking back on the war and and asking themselves you know like you know what what should we have done we should have done more why didn't we do more and I and I and I was thinking to myself okay well what would I have done in in these situations and would I have would I have you know, put myself out on a limb if the risk was, you know, you could get sent to a camp or in Lena's case, you could get sent back to the mental hospital or, or who knows where, you know, how far would you go to, uh, to save somebody or to, to do something that really is heroic? And I don't know, you know, I'm not sure if I would have the courage of these characters. I'd like to think that I would, but it's, it's a really difficult question, and it's a very uncomfortable question, too, because, you know, when we look back in history, I think we tend to point a lot of fingers, and I'm especially thinking about the Second World War, and I'm not excusing anything in any way, but I do think that it's very hard for us to imagine how we would have behaved under the same circumstances, because we really don't know. We don't know what it was like, um, and we have no way of, of even really imagining, because our society is not like that. We don't have these horrible pressures um, to, you know, to, to follow the law or else, you know, you, you get sent away somewhere horrible, right? Um, and it's, it's hard to imagine with that kind of threat over your head, how you would actually behave. So it's, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a tough thing to think about. I agree, but I like that it would make people think about it. Because it is easy to give a glib answer that, oh, you would never let that, that happen and you know better. Somehow, somehow magically you would know better. And, and like you said, have courage. But it doesn't always turn out that way. And sometimes when the government is playing mind games like the Stasi, <laughs> then I'm not even sure if you would know exactly what to do to fight it. I think that's very true. I, I, and the thing is that you wouldn't know who to trust. You wouldn't know what would really happen if, if uh, you know, if you, I don't know, if you if you cross the line, basically. Because sometimes, you know, like the Stasi would ask people to be informants. And I, I think the general, I, the, the general belief was that you had to say yes. But in fact... There were people who said no, and nothing happened to them. You know, the Stasi realized that they couldn't use them, and so that was it. They, they just they walked away from it. But, of course, 
that wasn't the popular belief, right? And I mean, their their philosophy was, you know, you you scare one person, and that will scare you know ten others, right? As the story will spread, and of course that that works. You know, you see something bad happen to one person, you think, oh my goodness, you know, that could be me next if I don't, you know, if I don't stay in line and, and do what I'm supposed to do. And that was that was how they they kept power. They didn't have really as much power as people thought they did, but it was the perception of power that was so powerful. That's a lot of power. <laughs> um, but it was the perception that that really uh, kept people in line because that was it was what people believed, right? So the use of fear as intimidation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Michelle. I've learned so much, and I yes, you're right. It is early days for the book, but I hope people will read it because. I love when books just have this new, fresh perspective that opens your eyes and your mind to something you never knew before, and that this is truly one of those books. Oh well, thank you so much, and thank you for having me on your program too. And I also, I really hope that it, I hope it catches on. I hope people read it. I hope they they have the same reaction that you've had because that was that was my intention in writing it. So yeah, it would be wonderful. And I am looking forward to the next <laughs> next thank book because I'm already intrigued. It's it is hard to find fresh perspectives sometimes on. Well, no, World War Two has been written about so much, and then afterwards is being written about more. But it it is hard to find. The different perspectives sometimes and tell yeah. different stories. Yeah. Well, I think that I mean, for one thing, I think that um, the German perspective has not really necessarily been that welcome either. For yes. A long time. I think maybe now it's only starting to, um, you know, people are starting to, to think, okay, we will we will read something from that point of view as well. For a long time, I think maybe it wasn't. It just wasn't done. You know, which is a shame um, because I think that when we do that, we're sort of tarring everybody with the same brush, which is, you know, making the making the same mistake that, that people have been making for centuries. Right. And, and we need to be open to different perspectives, regardless of whose they are, I think, anyways. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping that the, the German perspective post-World War Two is um, it's going to be fresh. It hasn't really been heard that much. Um and yeah, and it, I and I think it's one that's worthwhile because I think there were there were a lot of victims of the, of post World War II. They were men, they were women and children, and you know these were a lot of just innocent people uh, that that suffered because of something that uh, you know basically men had done for five six years before. So yeah, it's I think it's it's a, a viewpoint that's worth listening to. I hope. I think it just took. A long, long time for us to be able to even hear it. Oh, I think so, and I mean reasonably so, right? When you think about what happened during World War Two, it, it takes a long time to sort of get over what you know how horrible it was, and and to be able to sort of sit back and, and start to think about it. But I think it's critical to think about these things from a variety of different perspectives because it was so huge, and so many things went wrong. Um, and it's not impossible to imagine that they could happen again. So I think it's yes. really worth 
worth thinking about, worth listening to, worth putting ourselves in that uncomfortable position of saying, what would you do, you know, if, if you were in their shoes? What really, what would you have done? Um, and that's, that's, a tough, that's a tough question to answer. So I'm hoping that that's what that book at least is going to provoke, is that question. And then making it accessible to teens on top of that is an added challenge, but worthwhile. Yeah, I hope so. So um, anyways, yeah, it's, it's been, boy, that one's been a, a struggle and it's almost finished, I think. So, <laughs> so hopefully you'll be reading it in a couple of years or a year anyways. <laughs> I'll keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So this has been another edition of Amy's Travels in Teen Fiction. Today I was joined by Michelle Barker, uh, who's been graciously telling me about her book and exploring the wonderful world of historical fiction. I hope you'll tune in next time. Uh, I have a couple of authors coming up, and you'll have to wait to see who they are. But until then, happy reading.